Hi, I'm Chris McBrien, a Gen Xer, and the pop culture from my generation is awesome. And I'm Yance Eaton, a millennial, and the pop culture from my generation is dope. Episode 42, No Country for Old Men, movie review. Chris McBride here along with Yancey Eaton. Make sure you get us on Twitter at Yancey Eaton or at C McBride or make sure you head over to popgojoworld.com. All of our contact information is there. Yancey, Yancey, I had a great mm. weekend. I had a great weekend last weekend, man. I know you did. I, I've seen the pictures and stuff, but do you want to tell the, the listeners what you were doing last as, weekend? Yes, as I mentioned last show, uh, I was headed out with uh, with our good buddy Derek Myers, caveman himself, uh, and we went to see ZZ Top at Casino Rama up here in Ontario. Mm-hmm. And it was freaking awesome. It was so funny. So we get into the, we had great seats, right? So we get in there, we sit down and ZZ Top walks out and like, I mean, these guys are like, they're in their sixties. You know what I mean? And there, and there's, you know, the three guys, they walk out, you know, it's Billy Gibbons and Dusty Hill and, and Frank Beard, of course, Frank Beard, of course, the guy without the beard. And um, so they come out and it's basically, they're just, they just stand there with their guitars in front of like a wall of amplifiers and just start cranking out their tunes. But the, but the funny thing was, is like they came out and right away they were playing like, give me all your love and all this, you know, a couple other songs that are popular. Right. And, mm-hmm. but I was, I was shocked at a couple things. Um, Cause I've liked ZZ Top my whole life. I always thought they were great. And, but I was surprised at how many cover songs that they did. Like I like really? they, they have a songbook that goes on forever. They could do nine hours of material of their own stuff. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. They're out there doing. What, are you okay? Yeah, sorry, I just hit my spoon. Oh, oh, you hit your spoon. I don't even want to know. Uh, <laughs> you weren't heating it up at the time, were you? You weren't heating no. it. No, okay, it's all good. No, um, sir. Good stuff. Good. Thank goodness, young man. Um, make sure you don't go down that path. Okay. Anyway, um, so they did all these cover songs, right? So they come out and then they're playing some of their music, and then all of a sudden. They start talking about, they're like, oh, when we first started out, you know, there was this guy that we toured with and I, and I knew this and they said, you know, he really helped us out a lot. And uh, so here's one of his songs and they start playing Foxy Lady by Jimi Hendrix. And like, I, I remember that they had toured with them when they were really, really young. And so they're mm-hmm. playing Foxy Lady. And then, then they started playing, the, they, they get the, they go, hey, one of our buddies is here. And they bring him out on stage and he's playing the slide guitar and they start playing. I don't know. I don't know country music. So you got to forgive me, but it was, um, oh, it's this country music. They're going to put me in the movies. It's some, I don't know what it is, but he's playing this like ultra country song from like the fifties or something. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what the hell is this? And then, then they're doing a couple of their popular songs. Then they went backstage and they come out and they've got the, the fuzzy white guitars that they're known for from the legs video. Right. Iconic. And, yeah. Yeah. And so they're, they're, they do legs and like people were just going crazy and they get done and they go off. So everyone's still cheering. That is, that is really weird. And, you know, honestly, it makes me think about, like, it makes me think about Prince whenever he did that Super Bowl halftime show mm-hmm. where he had such a gigantic catalog of hits that he could have played, but he also, like, covered the Foo Fighters. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's, 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 it's weird that they would have done that. Yeah, but. I don't know why it was weird, but it was okay. I guess they were great. Um, but then they, they went off, and then they came out for an encore, and they did uh, LaGrange. So, of course, everyone crazy. And then they went off again, and then they, did, they came out for a second encore. And their second encore was, um, oh, what they, oh, they did Tush. And then everyone went crazy. And then they went off and they came out for a third encore. And their third encore, which was their final song of the night, they don't say anything. They just walk on stage and they start playing Jailhouse Rock by Elvis Presley. 
weird and that was that's how they ended it they ended the that night. is so like, odd it's bizarre you know but um but the thing is it reminded me about about the band that i like so much is they're so minimalistic in so many ways like just a couple of notes and stuff but it, i think that zz top is a lesson in it's not what you play it's how you play it and you're a musician you know exactly what i'm saying mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. just I, I cannot explain how bluesy that Billy Gibbons is and how bluesy his guitar playing is. Like, it's off the charts. Like, he's just so bluesy. He can play a couple of notes and just turn it into art. Like, it it was good. It was really, really good. And I had a good time hanging out with uh, with Caveman. And before we went to the concert, uh, we got to the hotel and we recorded an hour and a half podcast uh, doing a commentary on the movie Caddyshack. An hour and a half? Did yeah. you really go that long? Yeah, we we, 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 <laughs> we played the whole movie. It's a 90-minute it's movie. We played the whole movie, and we recorded a podcast of us watching it, com- commenting on the movie for an hour and a half. It was awesome. Oh, man, if, it was great. I'm going to say something which is probably not going to surprise you, but I have never seen Caddyshack. Yeah, I know. I know. It's going to have to be on the list that I throw at you back and forth, but... Uh, uh, yep. But anyway, we had um, we had a really good time, and and Caveman actually had an idea for the show that I wanted to throw to you. He was he was saying he really likes the new format, how we go back and forth with the movies. But he made a really good suggestion. He was suggesting maybe what we do is we do like one of your movies, one of my movies, and then we do an episode or two of our five, top five lists because we were doing that before, and then go back to a movie and movie. You kind of sprinkle it in, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, hey, you know what? I got to mention that to Yancey. So if anyone out there wants to shoot me something on Twitter or whatever, if you like that idea, maybe we'll do it. In the meantime, we got to get started. So let's go. The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. My parents watched this with me, and they hated it, like a lot of movies that I've already mentioned on this show. Break into Electric Boogaloo. Man, Eddie Murphy did some of the best impressions I've ever heard. Shabadoo and Boogaloo Shrimp. Chris. I've rewatched it as an adult. I still like it. This brassiere is killing me, and this garter belt is riding up my ass. Oh, my, my, my. What could possibly go wrong? My parents pieced out, like, halfway through it. I'm good, thanks. Yep, we're good. Okay, so this week we are covering No Country for Old Men. So you wanted me to watch it. The thing was, I'd already seen the movie. So do you want to take it away? This is your millennial film. So why don't you lead us in the conversation? Okay, so No Country for Old Men is not the type of movie that I typically gravitate towards. Um, It's not... You, you wouldn't find movies of this similar ilk in my top 15 or 20 lists of like my favorite movies of all time. But I watched this because a friend recommended it to me. And like I said in uh, last week's episode, this is the first movie that I ever actually went and watched by myself just because I didn't have anybody to watch it with. Nobody knew what it was or I'd heard of it or anything. Um, it is written and directed by the Coen brothers, which I'm sure, as you know, they also did The Big Lebowski. They did True Grit. They did Fargo. And when you think about that, when you think about Fargo versus this film, in a lot of ways, it's very similar. It's super minimalistic. It's shot very realistically. And it, it from top to bottom, it looks like a completely realistic movie. Very little, if any, special effects whatsoever. And it's just a well-written, well-acted movie that I just completely love. So what are your what are your big takeaways from this film? So uh, before we get into my takeaways, um, so you mentioned this is not one of the movies that would normally be in your top you know, uh, echelon of films. And why is that? Because it's not science fiction or what's, well, why did you pick this one then? Right. I, I typically do gravitate towards science fiction. Mm-hmm. I love CGI. I love really, um, you do, yeah. really kind of complex, you know, wordplay and all kinds of different things going on with multiple characters. And there's, you know, there's like this, this net that's being woven that's super complex and there's, you know, surprises and things jumping out at you and, and plot changes. And I like being surprised like that. And I like, 
being actively thinking about what's going on as far as the film goes. And with this, it's really straightforward. It is a film about money and somebody takes money and the other person tries to get it back. It's super, super simple in that sense. It's like a very, it's like new noir, you know, uh, Western film, but it, it is still just, like I said, it's, it's, it's written so incredibly well. It's shot so well. And, I, it made me kind of like revisit and go back and watch films like Fargo, you know, something that was more of just like a live action movie as opposed to all of the CGI and stuff. So it's kind of a it's a complete opposite of the films that I typically gravitate towards, like on a Friday night whenever I'm off on Saturday and I'm, you know, I'm just looking for something on Netflix. But I'm so, 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 so glad that I actually invested the time and gave this movie a chance. OK, so here's my thing. And I know I'm going to get uh, tweets and I'm going to get emails for this, but I don't care. I'm just going to say it because it's true. I gotta say, I'm not a huge fan of Joel and Ethan Cohen. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm just not. I remember watching um, Miller's Crossing like back in the early '90s, and I remember I genuinely disliked it. And and I thought Raising Arizona, I thought that movie was kind of weird. And I don't think I like, I didn't really like Fargo as much as like some people did. Um, although I still think it's probably their best film. And um, I, I feel like if I went all the way back to Blood Simple. The, one of the things that I did like about Blood Simple in that movie was I liked when they, they were shooting bullet holes and then there was like they were putting holes in the wall and these shafts of light were coming through, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. But I got to say, when it comes to Joel and Ethan Cohen, I remember it was in 2008, I think it was, it was after this. My wife dragged me to go see this movie, Burn After Reading. And it was one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, I literally hated that movie. Like, I hated it. And so I think it's pretty safe to say, overall, I'm not a huge fan of the Coen's brothers, you know, body of work. But mm-hmm. that being said, I did like No Country for Old Men. Um, yes, thank God. I, but I got to say, I have some criticism of, of it. And, and I'll say, I don't think it's all that original. Because to me, it feels like that they're trying to make a Tarantino movie. That's what I feel like. like I can see that. Like, I can see that for like, sure. Like I say, I I liked No Country for Old Men, but I think if it had been directed by Tarantino, I thought it would have been a hundred times better. Like a hundred times. So that's my feeling on. I, I think the Coens have they probably. I think they've actually admitted to being inspired by like Sam Peckinpah, but I think Tarantino is the one that comes through in this movie. And there's some elements of the movie, and I'm sure you're going to agree on this, um, that make it sort of Tarantino esque. So the first one that stands out to me is that that. I don't know what's like the air gun thing, like that bolt pistol mm-hmm. that Anton Sugar uses. Like when I, I remember when I first saw the movie, like I thought, I thought it was like, what the hell is this? And I thought it was like this pressurized air gun that, you know, gives like a blast of air. But mm-hmm. it, I did a little research and it turns out it's like a stun gun and like what they use to knock out animals in a slaughterhouse. And it yep. has like a metal rod in it that shoots out and comes back in really fast. So it penetrates the brain, right? To me, that's something right out of Tarantino's playbook, you know, in my opinion. Um, the I, I also thought it was interesting when um, Anton Sugar he he spares the life of that guy at the gas station. Remember he challenges him to like the coin flip again. Yep. That that's to me feels very Tarantino esque. And the other thing was was Josh Brolin. And it, as you know, one of Tarantino's calling cards is he likes to use actors that were like famous, you know, like a couple of years ago or like many many years ago. Like he kind mm-hmm. of rejuvenates their career. Like like he repurposes. Actors. Yeah, like John Travolta yep. and Pam Greer and things like that, right? And yep. they did that here with Josh Brolin because he was big in the eighties. Like mostly because like his dad James Brolin was an actor and was married to um, Barbara Streisand, but also like like Josh Brolin, like he was he was in the eighties staple The Goonies, right? So. It, for those reasons, it really felt like there was a lot of Tarantino stuff going on. Do you, you, you agree with me on this? 
I definitely agree with you that. And like when you talk about their body of work, this film kind of does seem like a departure from the other ones. You can tell that it's still obviously by the Coen brothers, but it is definitely a departure artistically, I think. And it does look a lot more like a Tarantino film. And I mean, just you saying that, that one line where you said, you know, I, say the Coen brothers wrote and produced this film and Tarantino directed it, who knows what we would have had. This movie won Best Picture, but it still could have been so much better with Tarantino. I'm a huge Tarantino apologist. I think everything he almost everything he does is absolutely genius but um that's a really really interesting insight i'm glad really quickly that you talked about the scene in the convenience store with the older man yes and that to me is my favorite scene of the entire film and i i was making sure i wrote notes on it just to make sure that i talked about this one particular scene um because i think it is it it puts javier bardem's character and his acting skills on display more than any other part in the film i think and it just shows like how incredibly tense and real and heavy like one particular scene can feel with very very minimal dialogue but you can tell like this this general store guy basically um for people who haven't seen the film i we, we should start doing this at the at the beginning we should preface this by saying you know maybe go watch the film first before you listen to this because we we're obviously going to talk entirely about the film and everything that happens um but this back and forth between the the general store owner and uh shigar you know uh his character bardem's character he's basically telling him you know this guy is kind of like asking him questions and you know says you know where are you from are you getting any rain where you're from down in dallas and you know he doesn't you know bardem's character takes issue with this basically he doesn't like the fact that he's asking where he's from he feels threatened by that and it starts a back and forth where the guy is just trying to be polite and bardem is not taking it like that at all um you know so he basically it comes down to a point where he tells him to call it heads or tails he's going to flip a coin and in doing so he kind of relegates uh the idea of having any type of self-responsibility to chance and and you know he's that's one of the major themes of this is you know free will versus chance or just that we're all kind of like floating around waiting for things to happen to us it's one of the major themes in this film that's why he's constantly flicking a coin he likes to give the idea that it's not actually him that's doing it it's fate that's determining this guy's life um it's my favorite scene in the movie i'm glad you brought it up but i mean did you see any other major kind of like overarching themes as far as the movie goes or anything else any particular scene that stuck out to you like um. Yeah. I like. I say overall. Like. Like to me, that was one. One of the scenes that. That I guess overall, and it happened a couple times in the movie. Was any time that he would say, uh, "Please." Like I think he says, uh, "This is on to Anton Sugar." When he's like, "Please get out of the car," and then he's like, "Please just stand still." And like you know what's coming, he's gonna put that thing on their head and shoot them with it, like which was mm-hmm. kind of creepy, and maybe because he also he had that that haircut and stuff like that, which I thought was interesting because I remember um, I had read somewhere that when uh, he first saw his the, the the a picture of the haircut that he was gonna have to wear, uh, Javier Bardem said, "Oh man, I'm not gonna get laid for like five months," <laughs> you know, like and uh, <laughs> and but because it was such a creepy character and all that. Just going back for a second, you mentioned it about it winning Best Picture, and we talk about this all the time. We could talk about like how movies we think you know got kind of snubbed in this and that. I don't think it should have won Best Picture the year it did. And I remember I was ticked when it won Best Picture because you talk about Tarantino influences, the movie that should have won Best Picture that year was the Tarantino of all Tarantino movies that's not directed by Tarantino, if that makes sense, was There Will Be Blood. There Will Be Blood came out that year and it was so much better. I think There Will Be Blood is the greatest American film since Pulp Fiction. So I'm, wow. I really, I'm really strong on There Will Be Blood. I love that movie a lot. Um, and I thought it was, fair. I thought it was a better movie that year, but, uh, but yeah, so that was one of the things that sort of stood out to me anytime that he was, you know, kind of doing that thing. I, you know, another thing we, we talk about a lot in, in this podcast, we always talk about like, like the different acts in the film. 
you know, like, you know, mm-hmm. in the third act. And that, and to me, the third act was what got me with this movie as being a, sort of sort of a letdown. Like, like to me, it didn't really feel like there was a lot of resolution and stuff like that. Like, I mean, I guess Sugar makes off with the money or whatever, so there's that. But, like, to me, I remember watching it and Tommy, jo- Tommy Lee Jones makes is giving his speech. He's sitting there giving his speech, right? And then all of a sudden... the opening dialogue? No, 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 the closing dialogue at the end. Okay. And then all of a sudden the movie's over. And I was like, my initial thought was like, that's it? Uh, It's over? Like, I don't... Okay, you know, like, so... I don't know. So there was some... There were some weak parts for that. I don't know. Do you agree with me in any way or am I just... I do agree with you. The the way the movie does end and especially how, um, you know, the, the, the main character, our hero, dies, just all of a sudden he just miraculously dies and that's basically the end of the movie. I mean, it is kind of anticlimactic and it doesn't give you that closure that you're used to seeing in, in movie writing. And I think, you know, some people don't like that, obviously, and they think that it's it's cheap or it kind of like robs the audience of, you know, like a fulfillment that they want out of the film. But I, in a way, too, I think it also kind of takes a little bit of courage to make a, a, an ending to a movie that's unpopular, and I think that's kind of what they did there. I don't know that the, the ending is the strongest part of the film. Actually, I know it's not. I wouldn't say that the ending is what makes it genius at all, but, I mean, I understand why they did it. I think it's just – it's taking a step. It's it's being courageous and doing something that kind of goes against the norm, and I'm kind of okay with it. it the, the the ending isn't the part that I love, minus the part with the uh, with his wife whenever uh, Shigar's character meets the wife at her home. You know, she's hiding in like El Paso or something, and he ends up finding her. And, you know, he there's this like really terse talk between uh, she and him. And she's like, you don't have to do this. And he talks about everybody always says, I don't have to do this. You know what I mean? Like as if they don't understand him at all or why he is the way he is. They just say these things like he's he's tormented and he is, you know, he's he's going along with it. They completely rebuke the fact that he's doing this because he wants to do it. You know what I mean? Like this is something that he promised that he was going to do and he's doing it. He is going to kill her. You know what I mean? Um. That part I love about, but I do agree with you what you're saying about the the ending. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, yeah. Do you so like I said, this film, the plot itself is it's very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a a super expansive uh, universe. There's very small characters, uh, small amount of characters that are in this. Very minimal dialogue. You know, oftentimes you see, uh, you know, there's there's drama and urgency, and it's created just by silence and these huge gaps in the dialogue where nobody is talking at all. And I think that's why it works. But my favorite thing about this film is the minor details that you see so like there's these minor details that tells us just how insanely skilled of an assassin shigar's character is like even like his weapon of choice it's it's super weird right like you said it's bizarre it's literally like a stun gun kind of thing that he just walks around with and it seems kind of stupid but when you think about it it just looks like an oxygen tank you know like the cop thought it was an oxygen tank so nobody questions him it was disarming right because that's what i mean when he said to people just stand still for a second and and it's disarming so they do it because they don't see it as a weapon right yeah, so that's just like that's one little kink into how, you know, like I said, the, the thought process that goes into how complex of a character this is, you know, and there's like really simple things that he does, like before he goes to, you know, to, to kill this person in the room in the hotel, he takes his shoes off, you know, what I mean, something really simple like that. So he's obviously trying to be quiet so he can sleuth into the room and kill them or something like whenever he sees the guy, you know, he kills two guys in the hotel room and he walks into the bathroom and he sees the guy in the shower, right? What does he do? He slowly, casually closes the shower curtain, you know, to keep the blood spatter from coming back on him. And then he shoots the guy with a sawed-off shotgun. There's really, like, really tiny little details like that. Like, or, or another one, for instance, when he sets a car on fire, you know, he basically shoves down, like, a, a bunch of cotton balls and sets it on fire so he, that he can go into the pharmacy and, and steal the, you know, lidocaine and other medical supplies from the pharmacy. All these things just, it without actually saying them or addressing them, uh, you know, 
you know, firsthand and, and bring them to your attention, you're kind of picking up these little pieces like this guy is incredibly skilled at what he does. This is a, a skilled assassin, a skilled hitman. And it's those little details, like I said, that it, it makes me fall in love with this film. So many little things that they do correctly. I, I, I know you didn't really prepare for this question, but did you pick up on anything like that? Like I said, with, with a film with such a minimalistic plot, minimalistic, uh, you know, special features and characters and dialogue. Do you think that's what kind of pushed this this film to you know winning the best picture and best director and best screenplay? Was it something like that, or do you think there was some other like overarching feature that kind of did it for this film? The overarching feature was the fact that it was directed by the Coens, and the way Hollywood works is Hollywood is very very political. So when it comes to giving out Oscars, it's not always the best picture. Like I say, There Will Be Blood was the best picture that year. But what happens is is Hollywood looks at sometimes as things as a body of work okay so what they're doing is they're looking at at the time 2007 when it comes time to vote for the oscar uh for best picture they're looking at it they're going you know what the cohen brothers have been around for a long time and they've done a lot of really good stuff so we have to give it to them and that's that's why i think it won best picture that's my personal feeling Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting, too, because, you know, you mentioned you like the, these big splashy movies that have, like, big budgets and stuff like that. The budget mm-hmm. of this movie is $25 million. How the hell did they, like, in all honesty, how the hell did they spend $25 million on this? Like, like, like it doesn't, <laughs> I, like, I, it I, seems minimalistic to me. Like, it seems, now, it grossed, like, $75 million, So, I mean, it got its money back. But, I mean, but it, it took a while to grow. It kind of started off slow and then, you know, picked up some steam. But it just seemed like when I saw that, I was looking up, you know, doing some research. And I was like, man, I spent a lot of money making this movie. Holy crap i can't figure it out but but uh, there were some things i liked about it. i really liked anton sugar i thought he was really cool i thought there were some parallels to some of their other work again i'm not a huge fan of their work but i did like fargo i thought there were mm-hmm. some parallels to that when you think about like the small town cop you know caught up in a murder and all that one of the cool things i will say that i thought i liked about the movie was the fact you mentioned about the minimal number of characters really there was the three main characters in it right you got sugar and moss and um and bell is uh, Tommy Lee Jones' character, right? Yep, Tom um, Bell. Yep. Uh, so the one thing I'm, that you find interesting, these are the three main characters, and a lot of times they occupy the screen individually. Um, but I don't think they even shared any screen time together at all, even though they're all kind of, and especially their fates are kind of all tied together. But mm-hmm. I, I don't think there was one scene where they actually shared screen time. I could be wrong. I, I think there was at the very end, but it's whenever uh, Moss's character, or not Moss's character, but... Um Brolin's character was dead and he was in right. the work basically confirming that he was dead so it may have even been a, a dummy for all we know but yeah right. no, that they don't actually uh, you know intermingle within the film at all yeah I thought there was a good um, there was a, the, the one quote too is I think it was the guy the guy's like uh, Sugar was had him you know with the gun and the guy's like are you going to shoot me and he's like that depends do you see me and I thought that was kind of an interesting quote, kind of an interesting line. Like, do you see me here? Yeah, that you're, I'm shooting you, you know, kind of thing. So mm-hmm. that was kind of cool. But uh, yeah, those were kind of my takeaways for it. Like I say, I liked it. I didn't love it, you know, but I thought it was okay. So I'm curious, um, you know, yeah, I guess, why, I mean, you know, we're, we go back and forth and pick movies. So why was this, why did this one over every movie that you could have picked in the, you know, of a million movies, why did you go with this one? Just because it was I, like, it held a special place to you because it was the first movie that you saw on your own kind of thing is that why i mean i think that has a really small part to do with it but uh, i also think it it was one of the first films that was able to completely grip me with no frills or 
I, I felt like I wasn't getting tricked. I felt like it was just a really simple story that was told very, very well, very, very well. And every single week we talk about this same thing, being emotionally invested in your characters. And that was imminent with this. Like there was no way that I could not care about the outcome of this. And like I said, despite the fact that they had very, very minimal dialogue whatsoever, I still felt like I got a really good sense of who these characters were as the film progressed. And it made me care. It made me really, really care about it. And I was completely gripped with this. I probably watched this film maybe uh, 12 to 15 times wow. since it's come out, which is really weird. I know every six months or so I'll see it on TV or something. I'll just watch it or it's on Netflix right now. So I just watched it again before we recorded. I just I, I love it. Like even, you know, we didn't mention Llewellyn's char- uh, character that much, but. Even him, who you would kind of think of like as this, you know, kind of like a, a Western, you know, kind of like a country bumpkin almost, which is kind of, you know, simplifying him a little bit. But even he, I thought, was incredibly intellectual. Like when you think about all the things that he did as far as evading this guy, you know, putting the the money, the ca- the suitcase of money in the, you know, in the AC duck and then mm-hmm. pulling it across and, you know, really simple things that he did like that just to. You know, or even when he went hunting for the for the staghorns, right? He would pick up his shells. Some, you know, stuff like that. That's really small details that is super intentional. It was just riddled throughout the entire film. Just really little intentional things that just kind of it all added up. This film does a lot of really small things very well, and it's not one big thing. I think that kind of like did it for me for this film. It's just. Like I said, the attention to detail is just unparalleled, and that I think that's why it kind of did it for me. Pretty cool. I'm just surprised because, like I say, as a millennial, I'm expecting you know Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff like that from you, and like the, the Matrix didn't shock me at all. Um, mm-hmm. This one really threw me for a loop that this was going to be one of your movies that you uh, that you wanted me to watch. I thought it was very interesting. Out of uh, out of ten, what do you give it on a, on a scale of one to ten? Ten being I'd give it a, I would give it a solid nine. Wow! Holy yeah! Smokes. I think it's nine I think it's like really huge. really good. Yeah. Whoa! Oh man, you're gonna hate me. I'm. I would probably put around a six and a half, seven. You know, <laughs> just, just being honest, like I just would. Yeah. You know, but uh, nine. Wow, that's pretty good. Well, if you know this movie really, really good, then I think it's time we play a little bit of a game here. Fun with Yancey. Okay, let's see how well you know this. One. I'm gonna throw some trivia of this movie at you, okay? okay? This movie, obviously, No Country for Old Men, is a film adaptation of a novel of the same name. Can you name the author? of the book that this movie's based on. I know it's McCarthy, but I cannot remember his last name. Oh, okay. I'll give it to you. It's Cormac McCarthy. Okay, I'm going to take it a little bit further because you're 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 kind of like a you know you're you're a Renaissance man in a lot of ways. So I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna really test your knowledge here. That's the nicest thing you've ever said to me, Chris. Oh, you absolutely are. Okay, (laughs) well you're a smart guy, right? So um the the, so the title of this movie, No Country for Old Men. All right, um it actually comes from the first line of a poem that's called Sailing to Byzantium. Yancey, can you name the famous Irish poet who gave title to this film? I cannot, Chris, and I'm not going to try. <laughs> not even try? I, I think you're a smart guy. You won a Nobel Prize, symbolist poet, you know? Uh, nope, I don't got it. Died back in the 30s. Yeats. It was William Butler Yeats. Okay, so that's okay. Okay, right now we're going to dive into the movie and get some trivia of the film itself. When Moss, when he comes across the, the scene of the drug deal that's gone wrong in the desert, right, at the beginning, and he finds yep. a briefcase full of money, obviously very central to the plot of the film. Yancey, how much money was in the briefcase that he finds? $2 million. Congratulations. Very, very, very good. Okay, let's go back in time a little bit with the Coen brothers, shall we? Can you name the first film that they ever directed? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm, I mentioned it already earlier in the show. It's, it's from 1984. It's Blood Simple. 
Blood Simple. No, yeah. I've never seen it. it. You should no. watch that. It's interesting. It's got Francis McDormand in it and Dan Hedaya. Dan Hedaya, by the way, piece of trivia, because you mentioned this earlier in the, you know, in one of the podcasts, you went back and watched Cheers. Remember when you watched Cheers? You watched like episode yep. of Cheers on Netflix? Dan yep, Hedaya, I got through the whole first season. Yeah. Uh, Dan Hedaya is Nick Tortelli. So he was in Blood Simple. Anyway, um, so obviously this movie, No Country for Old Men, very, very critically acclaimed. Okay, we know that. And when awards season rolled around, can you tell me? who the only member of the cast was to win an Oscar for their performance in this movie. Um, I want to I mean, it would make sense if it were Javier Bardem or Tommy Lee Jones, but just for the sake of the question, I'm going to guess like an off pick and say Woody Harrelson. I got to go with your first instincts, man. It was Javier Bardem, best supporting actor <laughs> for Anton Sugar. All right, okay, but I tell enough. you what, I'm going to take it a step further because we love all the Oscar stuff around here, right? So obviously Javier Bardem, he won the Oscar. But, you know, he's not the only cast member of this movie to have received an Oscar nomination. So, Yancey, could you name the other cast members in the film, not for this movie, but who've been nominated for an acting Oscar at some point in their career? Anyone else in the cast, who do you think has been nominated for an Oscar at some point in their career? Uh, I don't know. Josh Brolin. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so there's four. One of them is Josh Brolin. He was nominated in 2009 for Best Supporting Actor for Milk. Okay. Any other guesses? Mm, I'll go with Woody again. I don't know. Yeah, you're guessing, but any idea? Woody Harrelson is correct. He's been nominated for two Oscars. Any guesses on the movies? One was, one was Best Supporting Actor in a Supporting Role in 2009 for The Messenger and 1996 for The People vs. Larry Flint. He was nominated for Best Actor. Tommy Lee Jones, dude, four-time nominee. He's been nominated for The Fugitive, for Lincoln, In the Valley of Ella, and JFK. And you might never have got this, Tess Harper. Tommy Lee Jones' wife, she was nominated back to 87 for Crimes of the Heart. So, Hmm. that was a bit of a tough one. Sorry, I made that one tough. Okay, so, that's all the questions I got for you this week. But, uh, Yancey, I've got something else for you here, my friend. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, young man, is to come back next week after having watched the 1984 mockumentary Gen X classic, this is Spinal Tap. <laughs> you have mentioned in the past, you said, oh, I've had so many people tell me I've got to watch that movie. Here's your chance. Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm empowering you to be able to go back and watch this classic, classic Gen X film. So do you accept the challenge that I'm laying before you, my friend? I accept. I have not seen this film, but yes, I will definitely. But you've accept. definitely heard lots of things about it, right? At one point, I had a friend lend me the the DVD, and I just didn't watch it. Why not? <laughs> so, yes. What was the reason? You're just like ah, this looks dumb or something. Like what's the deal? Yep. You I don't know. It just seems it just seems super super campy. But like I said, I I know I need to see it. It's important. So many people have referenced it. So it's, it's I'm down. Al- it's almost entirely improvised the movie so you just you just have to see it so I'm really I'm, I'm excited and hopefully our listeners are excited too because you know like lots of people hold this movie very very near and dear to their heart and especially us Gen Xers we love it so uh, so you're going to watch that movie and come back next week and we're going to do it how does that sound Sounds good, man. Good deal. Okay, well, I, I did like the film this this week. Like I said, I didn't love it. I liked it. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, so next week, we'll take a look at this is Spinal Tap. Yes, this podcast is going to go to 11. You have no idea what that means, but you will next week, my friend. Let me tell you. Uh, so on behalf of Yance Eaton, this is Chris McBride saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thank you for listening to the Pop Goes Your World podcast. 
continue the conversation on Twitter at C. McBrien or at Yancey Eaton. Please consider leaving a review for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. Music.